0: Welcome to Ukraine 242. On the 24th of February, Russia began bombing Ukraine. It is a date burned into the psyche of every Ukrainian. For all of us, it was the onset of life in a changed world. In the next half hour, we will hear people in Ukraine describe this global alteration as it unfolds. I'm Ann Levine, reporting for Pacifica Network from WOMR and Kraina FM. When Russia bombed Ukraine, it touched me personally. My roots are Ukrainian. Prior to World War II, one grandparent fled Kiev and another fled Odessa. Both were fleeing genocide. I learned about a radio network in Ukraine called Kraina FM, and as a radio host of 15 years, their story lit a bonfire in my heart. From an undisclosed location, they are continuing to broadcast as Radio National Resistance, using the airwaves to support and assist the needs of Ukrainians. I was able to find and connect with Kraina FM staff, and our collaboration began. I am their media liaison to the USA, and with their help, bring you reports from people in Ukraine. My interview today is with Victoria Gozudarska. She's a trend analysis officer for the OSCE. The OSCE is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It has 57 member states from Europe, Central Asia, and North America. It is the world's largest regional security organization. Their activities cover a wide range of security issues, such as conflict prevention, fostering of economic development, ensuring the sustainable use of natural resources, and promoting the full respect of human rights and fundamental freedoms. The OSCE has field presence in Southeastern Europe, Eastern Europe, the South Caucasus, and Central Asia, As a trend analysis officer, Victoria's areas of professional interest include defense and security, counterterrorism, humanitarian aid and coordination, asylum policies, and hybrid warfare. Hybrid warfare is war on several fronts. For instance, ground warfare and cyber warfare. Victoria also refers in this interview to the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. It's a UN agency mandated to aid and protect refugees forcibly displaced communities, and stateless people, and to assist in their voluntary repatriation, local integration, or resettlement to a third country. Headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, founded by the United Nations in 1951, it is abbreviated UNHCR and HCR trend analysis officer for the OSCE, Victoria Gozudarska. I don't think my story of the 24th
1: morning will be very similar to other stories that you have heard because of a few things. First of all, due to my job for the past three years, I was kind of more aware of what the war is what the different sounds of explosions are and what could happen if the war starts so on 23rd in the evening it was kind of symbolic now when i think of it because i had an opera night with a friend of mine we went to ukrainian opera natalka poltavka it's a very famous ukrainian opera and then you know we had some wine in the Crimean Tatar restaurant, which is also quite symbolic. And I came home after midnight, and exactly at 5 a.m. sharp, I woke up from three consecutive explosions, and I immediately understood that these were anti-air exploding the missiles that were apparently shelling. I was living on the left bank of in, in Kiev, and this is close to Borispil airport. Well, not that close to be affected, but quite close to here. So I immediately knew what was happening. Then I went in news and in 20 seconds, I learned that a couple of hours before that, a war was announced. So I found out that I didn't panic. I wasn't scared. Also I started hearing, you know, these people running back because I was living on the 16th floor. So the elevator in my building was going crazy. People were running back and forth, up and down. I went to the window and I saw that some people were already taking cars and and moving away. Others were smoking cigarettes outside and trying to see in the sky what was happening. Like Coping mechanisms are so much different with different people, you know, somebody couldn't care less. Others were already on the move with suitcases cases at 5.30 in the morning. And the first thing that I did, I started, you know, charging everything in my apartment, like all the laptops and smartphones, anything I could, because the thing that I was afraid most of all was the power cut. I thought that they would be tired targeting critical infrastructure. First, I understood they were already targeting military infrastructure, and I thought that it wouldn't take long until they start targeting critical infrastructure, and I was afraid that there would be power cut, cell phone connection cut, of course, no internet, and there would be no running water, which is also critical. And then I called my parents, and that was a bit challenging because I was trying to calm them before I told them what was happening. But My mom has diabetes, maybe not many people know, but people with diabetes, they have this thing that sometimes if their sugar gets lower than it's supposed to be, they become kind of half conscious. And this always usually happens during the night with my mom. So when I called her, she was actually in this condition that she couldn't understand what I was telling her. And then I called my father and then I told him, look, don't worry, everything is fine. I don't know why I said that, but I said, everything is fine, but there's a war starting now. And then through the whole day, I, I actually spent the whole day on the phone with friends, parents, colleagues, trying to figure out what to do. But I also had to work and follow what was happening at the same time. So it's, it wasn't really like a thing for me to to just drop everything and run away. I just could not afford that. I had to work.
0: You're a trend analyst for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, correct? For oh, the cultural Monitoring Mission in Ukraine, right? Can you please describe for us a little more what that is and what that means? Special
1: monitoring mission to Ukraine was was already now. <laughs> was mandated to observe and monitor the security situation in the country since April, March, April 2014 and report on that. So basically as a trans analysis, as a trans analyst, I was in charge of analyzing the data that mission was collecting on the ceasefire violations in eastern Ukraine when the conflict was concentrated there, right? For the last eight years before 24th of February and other data on security situation in the country and i'm also in charge of analyzing political situation and any any developments that influence the mandate of the mission so basically on the 24th i was one of the, of this team that was trying to understand what, what is happening and try to figure out and follow every piece of news to make sure that we have a picture of what is happening because nobody knew and on the first day i mean things were changing on a minute basis not on an hourly basis but on a minute basis
0: I understand that this mission was shut down just recently. Is that correct? It hasn't been shut down yet, but it's going to be in the process.
1: Unfortunately, let me explain it. The mission started its operation in spring 2014, end of March if I'm not mistaken, and the mandate that it got was again to monitor security station in the country. But while well, the operation was planned in a way that the mandate was to be prolonged every year on 31st of March on the basis of consensus of all OSCE member states. So all all member states basically had to say yes every 31st of March every year. And this year, on 31st of March, one member state, which is Russia, said no. So the mandate was not prolonged. And since the mandate was not prolonged, there was no other way to to keep the mission. So mission will have to be shut down. It's not yet, but will have to be.
0: Obviously, we're in circumstances where it seems like it's more needed than ever for there to be this monitoring and action. What will take its place? What will you be doing now? Monitoring will have to continue in some way, right? Yes, everybody, almost everybody, except for one member
1: state of the O.C., agrees on that. But since there is no mandate, mission cannot do anything. So it cannot monitor. It, it it's not authorized to do anything. At the moment, there's going to be no monitoring mission in Ukraine, except for the UN Agency for Human Rights, I forgot what, what's the exact name, So, and other agencies that monitor some bits of what's happening in their areas of responsibility on human rights violations or alleged war crimes. Other than that, at the moment there's, and in the nearest future, there's going to be no monitoring mission, unless there is a request for a new one and somehow, but I don't think it's within OSCE, but it's, it's it's a huge question now because a mandate of such a mission will have to be approved by all member states of any organization. And then Russia is a member of all of them. Um, UN. I think EU is the only authority that can organize such a mission without, you know, a member state that would be strongly against. But this is just my speculation. There is no decision yet.
0: Is there a way to set up an independent monitoring system that would not require Russia's participation?
1: That's a good question, but it has to be still
0: funded. I'm sure there is a way, but from
1: what I know, there has been no such initiatives yet or even talks. Maybe somewhere behind very closed doors in some diplomatic circles, but so far, honestly, I think the military. Support and then humanitarian disaster and maybe the monitoring of war crimes are the priorities now, but maybe the overall monitoring of security situation may not be a priority now. I'm I'm not sure, but so far, I haven't heard of any talks on establishing
0: an independent mission. What will you be doing now with the OSCE?
1: I am still employed by RSC, but of course I will have to look for other job opportunities. And well, honestly, the conflict also kind of turned my career plans or dreams or whatever upside down because before joining OEC, I worked for UNHCR, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, for less than a year. But I was working also in Ukraine with the conflict-affected people and internally displaced persons also in the east of Ukraine and from the east of Ukraine back in 2018. And I was actually aiming to apply for positions at UNHCR in Middle East because I'm kind of interested in the conflict affected areas of Middle East. But since twenty fourth of February everything has changed and I now I, I want to go back to working with the humanitarian crisis, to working with conflict-affected populations in Ukraine, with internally displaced persons, and I hope to get a position at UNHCR. In the near future they are going to expand because you can imagine their scope of work has just grown 100 times since the 24th of February. And I hope to get a position there and be able to help as much as possible to conflict-affected populations in Ukraine because this the situation was the internally the displaced persons especially who escaped conflict in in the hot spots in Mariupol Kharkiv Kharkiv oblast and Donetsk and Luhansk regions it's a huge scope of work because i mean people have lost everything and in terms of financial support but also psychological support a lot of things have to be done and this is a scope of work for years and years from what i can judge from this kind of work it's it's a work for years to come because the effect of this war is just devastating in the east of Ukraine and in areas that where the kinetic activities took place. Also in in Kiev region, I've been to the areas that were affected. The villages are devastated. People have nowhere to come back.
0: This is Ukraine 242. I'm your host and producer, Anne Levine, with Victoria Gozudarska, Trend Analysis Officer for Defense and Security, Counterterrorism, Humanitarian Aid and Coordination, Asylum Policies, and Hybrid Warfare for the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. My understanding is that some of the people coming out of Mariupol and some of the other cities in that area are being taken by Russians to Russia, to camps. Do you know anything about that? Honestly,
1: as everything that concerns... Russia, in terms of their actions, is difficult to talk about it because there is no proper data or evidence or clear information provided. On the non-government controlled side of Lugansk and Donetsk region, there is no OECU there. UNHCR is not there. Even the Red Cross is not there anymore. So there is not a single organization or a single person that is not biased and, and can actually monitor or say something. So what we know is some information from Open sources, again, based on what Ukrainian side says, yes, it does happen. Ukraine claims that they have taken more than 100,000 children to Russia. I don't know if this figure is correct. But the fact is, yes, that people are being taken to Russia. There is a huge problem with that because there is no embassy or no consulars or not a single diplomat in Russia from Ukraine. So they basically have nowhere to refer to. As for the camps, I don't have information that I can really rely on. I only know that the witnesses that were coming out of Mariupol to Ukrainian side said that what they call camps, where they check people and decide whether they let them go to Ukrainian side or they don't let them go because they assume that they are, I don't know, politically affiliated with Ukraine or, you know, activists and they want to you know prosecute them, for example. That these are not really camps. These are just huge lines of cars that stand in one place for for days. And this also happened with people from non-government controlled area from Donetsk who were evacuated from Donetsk just before 24th of February. They were taken to Russian territory, but they were staying in some places inside buses. And then they were transported somewhere else. That is the information from open sources again. So I'm not sure if camps really mean camps, you know, in the in direct sense of word. This may be just that they keep people in some place in transport to check their documents. looking for, you know, people that they may be affiliated with Ukraine, the way that they would, would want to prosecute them or would want to charge them with something, with activism or, or anything.
0: I spoke to a woman two days ago who told me that her family was taken out of Mariupol. And that they were being told they were being taken to Vladivostok and that people were being physically checked for pro-Ukrainian tattoos, their phones, and that people that they found, say, with these things were being shot. Do you know if there's any truth to that? I have heard of this and there is quite a few witness
1: statements about this on the media that yes, in these lines, waiting to exit the area, they are checked, yes, physically, especially for tattoos. But what I've heard were witnesses and people who were checked, but they did not find anything on them, so they survived. I assume this could be true, but I haven't seen any official statement on this, you know, just the witnesses. And yes, any sign of being affiliated to Ukraine in a way that this is your belief and this is your position, yes, this is very dangerous.
0: I've also been told that Russians are telling men and boys that they are going to have to join the Russian army and fight Ukraine. Is that something you've heard also?
1: You mean in the the areas that they have occupied recently? Yes. Again, yes. This is the information from the media. This is the information from Ukrainian official sources. Apparently, intelligence confirmed that they are trying to put these people under conscription.
0: What are they doing with children? I I heard about a a mother, a father with a one-year-old and a seven-year-old who were threatened with the killing of the children if they didn't agree to go to Vladivostok. Again, is that something you've heard to be honest, I haven't heard of precisely this kind of behavior.
1: At the moment, these are alleged crimes, but the investigation is ongoing and the International Criminal Court is on this. So at some point, there will be an official statement on what happened in Kiev region precisely, in Bucha in Ostomel. And in Kherson region, in some areas, children and women were abused sexually and in a very devastating ways. So I would assume that again that this could be something that can take place given what kind of things we have already seen. There have been a lot of cases with abusing children.
0: What can the world do? Is there a way to get in there? Is there a way for oversight or is it just impossible at this point? It is definitely possible in the areas which have been liberated. When
1: there is an ongoing military activity in a place, it's difficult for any kind of monitors to be there because to work and to monitor and to be able to verify something you have to have at least some kind of a security that you can can do things for example with what happened in in Butchak was good i think that the moment they left the moment they moved out and then the town was liberated again as well as other villages and towns in Kiev region it was open for um, for journalists but at that point, people did not expect this level of violence that had happened. So I don't think that we, in terms of a community, we were fully prepared to examine it maybe properly, but still the examination took place. So I think that in this case, like the, there has to be a precise and prepared examination and deep investigation of what was going on in every single liberated area, as long as it's liberated. Yesterday, the evacuation of civilians, which were mainly, of course, women and children and a lot of elderly and disabled people from the bunker of Azovstal that were hiding there in Mariupol. And people had been hiding there for more than two months before they were evacuated. And the evacuation was completed yesterday, but for that evacuation to be completed, there were two months of negotiations. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, had to go to Moscow to talk to Vladimir Putin in person a week before. And then the evacuation was the coordination of Ukraine, Russia, Red Cross, and UN started on the 2nd of May, if I'm not mistaken, and and was completed with or less than 100 people per day because although it was kind of agreed on, there was no window of silence. Again, the defenders of Azovstad, Ukrainian soldiers, a few of them died during the evacuation while they were accompanying these civilians to the buses. So that is why I think that it's it's not really possible to investigate or monitor anything during the conflict in exact area, in specific area, because the window of silence is just impossible. Usually what would happen if there is something that needs examination, then sides would have to normally agree on the window of silence for some time. But so far, since 24th of February, I cannot recall any success with that. There has been no window of silence agreed on.
0: When you say window of silence, you mean ceasefire?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on a short agreed period of time to usually, would yes, to evacuate civilians. wounded soldiers, to evacuate right. civilians. So in conclusion, there has to be very precise examination immediately after liberation of the areas. But during the
0: ongoing conflict, it's really, really hard. As far as you know, is everyone out of Azovstal or is anyone still in there? According
1: to, again, official information of Ukrainian side, they say that evacuation of all civilians, and they say that that evacuation and that kind of humanitarian mission, as they called it, is completed so apparently there is no more civilians left there but well ukrainian soldiers are are there and some of them are wounded some of them are very seriously w- wounded there is no chance to to evacuate wounded wounded soldiers because there is there would be no window of silence and there would be no way to agree on that although normally sides would agree on that There are rules of war, there are laws of war, but somehow in this war, none of them work.
0: Do you have any sense of any progress that's being made in this whole occupied region of whether or not Ukraine is going to be able to hold them off and liberate these places? I'm not a military expert,
1: but what I can say that the Ukrainian side claims to be able to do that in some time, of course, was the support of the heavy weapons provided by Western partners, including the help of the land lease that is supposed to be signed by the US president. You know, what the military experts say is that support would be crucial to, again, to liberate areas and fight them back. But it's also true that it's not going to happen very soon. To be able to take advantage of all this military support, well, the Ukrainian side will have to be able to hold on for another like three weeks uh, up to a month until enough weapons arrive to be able, you know, to make it as a game changer too. But because at the moment, apparently it's not yet a game changer.
0: Two more questions for you. One huge one. How do you see the end of this war? What could happen for it to stop?
1: It's a very difficult question because I think my vision of the end of this war has changed a few times already since, the, since it's, we call, I mean, we, we consider that the, the war, I mean, in Ukraine it's considered that the war began back in 2014 and this is like the escalation. So, but since the 24th of February, my vision on this has changed a few times. I honestly had a lot of hopes on negotiations, especially during the first weeks, But what I see now, again in the view of of what I have said about that, there has been no success in a single ceasefire, I don't think that negotiations would really work. I mean, they work, the negotiations are constantly undergoing, they are discussing ways in and out, but the thing is that they don't agree on crucial things. Another point is that in Russia, they change their views also constantly. So, I don't think that real peace negotiations will ever take place. However, any war should end with a uh, with a peace agreement, then there will be some kind of peace agreement, but not an agreement that we were hoping for at the beginning of of this escalation that it just would end it quickly or immediately. I think that military activities will will be taking place maybe until the end of summer and it will depend on how well this heavy weapons that again Ukraine receives from accumulates from the western support how well it works with uh, on on the on the ground. Political situation in Russia also is uh, is another thing but well it's really becoming very difficult to analyze it since there's a lot of unknown things and it's really not a a good idea to analyze that because whatever you analyze is just not worth it and because there's so many things we don't know about them what's going on there inside their circles inside the elites and inside the society but i think that the outcome of the war anyway will be decided on the ground on the ground and on the battlefield in in the east and south of ukraine
0: Finally, I wanted to ask how you are doing personally. Are your parents in Kiev? Well, I'm not in Kiev now.
1: I come there from time to time, but I'm with my parents in Hmanitsk which is like four hours, three and a half hours west from Kyiv. Well it's not that far, but we were say, lucky not to have any military activity
0: here. And everyone is doing everyone okay? Is,
1: yes, everyone is doing everyone is safe, thanks God we're all in ukraine nobody has left none of my relatives have have left the country we're all here
0: well i'm glad to hear that you are safe This is Ukraine 242 with Victoria Gozudarska, Trend Analysis Officer for Defense and Security, Counterterrorism, Humanitarian Aid and Coordination, Asylum Policies and Hybrid Warfare for the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. I'm your host, Ann Levine, and the creator of Ukraine 242, in collaboration with WOMR Radio, Pacifica Network, and Kraina FM, bringing you firsthand, on-the-ground reports during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Editing and production by Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network. Recordings by Michael Levine. My meeting with Victoria was arranged for me by Roman Davidoff of Kraina FM Ukraine. If you'd like to send a message to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115. Again, that's 510-883-3115. Your message will be translated and broadcast to 26 cities across Ukraine.